Another edition of Outside Shots presented by TheLines.com. You can follow us on X at TheLinesUS. Remember, if you want to tail or fade, it's okay to fade our college basketball picks. You can do so and check out all of our bets in the Lines Discord channel. The link is over at TheLines.com in the top right-hand corner, ones that we may not be discussing on the show throughout the course of the week. And you could also, if you're not a user of BetMGM Sportsbook, first-time users get up to $150 back in bonus bets with a $5 bet slash deposit. And you can use promo code THELINES in order to get that offer. Remember that bonus bets are not equivalent to real money. You can follow my co-host on X at StephenAndrus1. You can follow me at Eli Herskovich. Stephen, how was your single dad weekend? Um, better than my bets. Tough betting weekend. Maybe new rule. No college basketball bets when I'm single dad life. It's a lot to juggle, my friend, because the results did. It was it was probably my worst college basketball betting uh, weekend of the season. So uh, maybe a lesson learned there. There you go. You got to pay attention to your kids and watch games. It's. It's not super fun. We're all adjusting to our new norm. It's all about self-scouting, Eli. It's all, especially with work-life balance. It's not just about self-scouting your picks and your bets. <laughs> it's about balance, my friend. And it, and I learned that the hard way this past weekend. I'm right there with you. So as we look back at the weekend really quickly before we dive into a four-game slate or a four-game card here that we're going to discuss through Thursday... St. John's blowing a 19-point lead to Seton Hall over the weekend. We make good bets. We also make bad bets, as you alluded to. St. John's Final Four Futures, not my finest bet this season. Looking at national title odds or in the Final Four Futures market. Six-and-a-half-point favorite, up 12 at the break. Last four losses, they have covered each of the first halves. In all of those games, despite losing all four of those games, obviously, I had 25 to one or 22 to one, whatever it was, St. John's Final Four Futures. And Rick Patino deciding to thrash his players after the game, saying Joel Soriano is not fast on the court. Chris Ledlam, Harvard transfer, slow laterally as well. And guess what? Sean Conway, also slow laterally, and Brady Dunlap, physically weak. Dresa Traor is slow laterally too. So he went back to how yet another player is positionally slow. What did you make of those post-game comments, man? So some background here. I, I covered Rick Pitino for a handful of years at the height of his career when he won the national championship at Louisville in 2013 as a local sports reporter here in Louisville. And, um, you know, it was, it was a blast, you know, it was, the final year of the Big East as we knew it before it split up and became just the Catholic basketball schools after that. Um, you know, we surprised him with one of the, the, the last net from Madison Square Garden that Louisville chose not to cut down because they only wanted to cut down the national title nets. So we cut down the nets ourselves and didn't tell anybody about it. And uh, just to make sure nobody accused us of jinxing their run. So after they won the national title, we did a story and surprised him with the net because we knew – um, you know, it's a big deal to him. He's a New York guy through and through. And, and obviously him taking the St. John's job was a big deal for him. This is just the one aspect of Rick Pitino. I always find a little frustrating. He's a fantastic coach. He's done a lot in his career. He's a Hall of Famer, obviously. But when he gets this angry about losing and then says things like he did 
it's you know i almost want to just say like you pick the players man like the, you i and it's a really hard job to turn a program around in one season even in you know this current landscape with the transfer portal we can get guys to come in right away but it's still a really hard job to take a team and a program like St. John's, which was just in the cellar, to making them a tournament team in one year. So the task was always difficult. And like I get criticizing your players and their athleticism and all that, but it just seems like it's it's gotten it, it went so far. Him doubling down, like I think he's forgetting. You still got to go get other players to come play for you if you want to get better next year. And I I just had an issue with that. I think. Um, it's a little tone deaf given the nature of players in the environment and having to get new guys to come in next year and better talent, hopefully, if they're going to make the tournament next year. And I think it also lacked a little bit of, um, you know, accountability and him taking some responsibility for the players and the way they're playing. So um, not my favorite moment of Rick Pitino, for sure, as a basketball coach, but um, you know, hopefully it's better in, in future years if they do, in fact, miss the tournament this year. Johnny's in conference play, ranking the third percentile across college basketball in percentage of points a lot on fast break opportunities. He has a right to be upset to your point. That was great context, by the way. So when all is said and done, rest in peace to our St. John's futures from January 2024 through February, what, 18th. 2024 was short-lived it was fun it was a fun ride just because they had so many opportunities i mean we we've seen crazy last minute five games in five days to win the big east and then make a run of this so like you're not dead but certainly you do have two feet in the grave at the moment that's true We've seen Big East teams of years past, but they also had more chemistry. When yeah, you think to, about to it. use a Rick Patinoism though, I don't think Kemba Walker's walking through that door. Denise Jenkins is good, but right, he's not Kemba Walker, that's for sure. <laughs> Man, that was sad to watch on Sunday and then reading his comments. I mean, going back to the AJ Store transfer thing, you could have buyer's remorse or I guess seller's remorse. I don't know if he could have kept store or not. Probably got some money to go to Wisconsin via NIL. But like, but why? Like, how's that supposed to make your current players feel? You know, like that. There's no, there's no upside to saying something like that. That's my whole thing, Eli. Listen, I'm right there with you, and it's more fun to hopefully dig St. John's out of the grave per se than kind of hope the rest of the way. I would rather be surprised. It's not happening. So I'm burying the hatchet, as some would say. And just not being as optimistic as you want to be down the stretch here. <laughs> Maybe even Big <laughs> East Tournament Futures. I don't blame you, you. Yeah, if you want to go that route. But staying in the Big East, looking at the first game that we're going to discuss here among the four, UConn at Creighton. What do the numbers say for this one, Steven? Well, first of all, it's an 8.30 p.m. tip-off on Tuesday night. You can watch this one on FS1. It's going to be a phenomenal game, obviously. Creighton looking for a little bit of revenge after losing to UConn pretty handily, failing to get the 50 points on January the 17th. Spread right now, consensus UConn minus three on the road, over-under of 145. Eli, you still have Houston as your top team, so you have UConn number two. You have Creighton right around their AP poll ranking. You have them at number 17 versus the number 15 ranking in the AP poll. 
So my question to you is you're, you love talking about spots. It's a big deal. It's a blind spot for me. I like to look at numbers and clearly in college basketball, this past weekend was evidence that I just had a, had a blind spot for spots. So this to me screams potential spot after UConn had a big emotional blowout win of Marquette, some revenge from last year. And now they have to go on the road to Creighton who has some flaws. Well, I'll talk about that in a second, but uh, clearly this is going to be a wild atmosphere trying to knock off UConn in Omaha, Nebraska. Right. And on a 14 game winning streak, the nation's longest winning streak. So they're being priced into the market that way. And when you think about spots and the odds makers or the betting market shading towards spots, I think this number, I make it closer to UConn minus one. So this is truly one of those situational spots. And maybe UConn blows past the potential letdown, like you mentioned, after blowing out Marquette. You saw Cam Spencer talking trash to one of Marquette's bigs going back to the huddle up 29 or 30 points in the final minutes of that game. So that game clearly meant a lot to them, which we discussed in Handicap last week. But if you look at UConn's last five games... I think they're due for a lot of negative regression when it comes to their perimeter defense, allowing 25.4% their opponent shooting-wise, percentage-wise on corner threes, 27.0% on three-pointers from anywhere else on the court over this last five-game stretch. And Creighton goes without saying, attempting the ninth most three-pointers in college basketball when you look at Overall field goals attempted per game, 16th highest three-point scoring rate. Baylor Shireman, Stephen Ashworth, even Trey Alexander, and also even Ryan Cockbrand are contributing in that regard. And I think they're also starting, you may have some net negatives with Creighton overall, maybe in the long term, but kind of starting to hit their stride to me. They've won three straight games, 22-point win at Butler in a big spot for the Bulldogs, which Maybe inching closer towards the bubble here over the next few weeks. We'll talk to Jerry Palm, CBS Sports Bracketologist, about that in a little bit. And also, like you alluded to, Creighton eyeing revenge after a double-digit loss at UConn in mid-January. And keep in mind, that was Donovan Klingon's first game back. So somewhat of an emotional win for UConn in that game. And blowing the doors off of Creighton, Blue Jays couldn't get anything to go in transition My one area of concern for the Blue Jays in this game, even though it's a great home spot situationally, and like I said, I think they should be able to tack on some negative aggression to UConn's perimeter defense, at least of late. Creighton's drop coverage was an issue in that first matchup. Cam Spencer, I mentioned him a little bit ago, took advantage of that in the half court and in transition with Creighton running drop with Ryan Kochbrenner. So, If Creighton can't get those transition opportunities that it couldn't get in the first meeting, then UConn may be able to take advantage in transition and once again in the half court. But numbers-wise and matchup-wise, I think Creighton gets revenge here. I'm I'm not so sure. Um, Here's here's my concern. We talked about going into that Butler game that Creighton, in my opinion, is still shooting too many threes. Um. They did it again. They're they're averaging you know forty percent of their shots this year is three pointers. They shot forty two percent of their attempts beyond the arc against Butler, and Butler just didn't hit any threes, and that's why the margin was what it was. Butler went six of twenty two from three. So you do that, you're not going to win the game. So if this is still a Creighton team that's really good inside the arc against most opponents, like elite, but they don't take enough attempts from there. 
to balance out the inefficiency of their three-point shooting. So that's that's a tough spot for me here. And, and with the size that UConn has on the inside, I'm nervous that they're going to chuck up too many threes again here. I, I understand your point about negative regression. I agree with you, but you know what if what if they only shoot like 34% from 3 is that enough in this game you know that would be positive regression based on what UConn's defense is allowed is that enough because i think um you know the, the other side too here is UConn should be able to shoot the lights out against Creighton's perimeter defense Creighton has massively struggled defending the 3 over the past 8 games Brad Evans had a great stat this week Creighton 317th in Division I in three-point field goal defense over the past eight games. And as we know, UConn has a couple of sharpshooters in Caravan and Spencer who are shooting greater than 40% from three. So to me, the, the three-point line is a huge story in this game. You know, the first meeting between these two teams, we talked about how reliant Creighton has been on threes. They were even more reliant the first matchup between these two. Half of their field goal attempts in the first matchup against UConn were from three. They didn't hit many of them. That's why the margin was what it was. So to me, I I certainly understand on the surface, it appears there's a little bit of value taking Creighton here. Haslametrics agrees with you, Eli. They have this basically closer to a pick them. You have a UConn minus one. And we're sitting at three. There's three and a half on the board as we record on Tuesday morning here. So on paper, it looks like you know there's a little bit of value in taking Creighton. I just don't know if I want to step in front of the friggin' steamroller that is UConn right now, especially with the nature and the way Creighton runs their offense, and it makes me a little squeamish night in and night out. So uh, I agree with you. It would probably only be Creighton here, just be you know the way the numbers match up. We're going to stick to our numbers, process over results, all that. I agree with you, but I'm, just, I'm not excited to bet against this UConn team night in and night out. I think they're the best team in the country. To kind of play devil's advocate to your point about Creighton's perimeter defense, that is something we mentioned last week, and maybe they're due for a little bit of positive regression or positive variance when it comes to opponents' three-point shooting. And it correlates to if you get any sort of a letdown with UConn off of that Marquette game. If you don't believe in spots, and I'm not talking... Yeah, like I'm said, not saying I don't believe in spots. I, right. I'm just not good at spotting the spots. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair, and... There are people, let's say, going back to Monday night that may have said, okay, the Vatek Virginia line is too high, or the Houston Iowa State line is too high. And Iowa State backers covered, even though it was a revenge spot for Houston. And the same couldn't be said for Virginia backers if you took the four, even three and a half, because Virginia Tech won that game by, I think, 30 plus. So my notion towards this game. It's not to say that spots always come to fruition, but I think the stars align here, to use a cliche, for Creighton. And then one last thing for UConn, just in the long term, like you said, you don't want to get in front of the UConn bulldozer. And I think that's going to be the same thought process for many betters is going to take place come the NCAA tournament. And that's going to be baked into their number when, whether it comes to Final Four futures, national title futures, or single game wise. And if you look at final four odds, UConn plus 115 to make the final four minus 145. No, but since Florida won consecutive titles, 2006 to 07, there have been 15 NCAA tournaments may seem like an obvious statement, but this one probably doesn't. The reigning national champ has won a combined 13 games in those 15 tournaments. 
and they haven't gone to a single Elite Eight. So I'm not saying fade UConn in the dance solely because of that, but the market is going to inflate UConn consistently throughout the tournament, and I think this is yet another example of that tonight in a really good spot for Creighton. Now, my rebuttal to that trend would be we are clearly in another era of college basketball at this point where tweeners and fringe NBA draft picks are far more likely to come back and play again because they can make more money with NIL and college basketball as opposed to in the past where it all had to be under the table and maybe it wasn't there for them. So they were more likely to go to the draft, even if they were going to be a, a second rounder or a fringe first round pick. So that that would be my response. I, I would say if there's a team that's going to buck that trend, it seems like this era and this UConn team is a really strong candidate to do so. That's fair. UConn losing three NBA players last year, but you have Stefan Castle potential. He may be playing himself into a top five pick, let alone kind of clearly a lottery pick at this point. Donovan Klingon. I don't know if he, I would assume he goes pro after this season, but who knows? Maybe he gets an offer NIL wise from UConn and decides to stick around for another year. But at least pure talent wise, when you look at the roster they had, whether it was cohesion or the combination of that with pro talent itself. Last year's UConn team had more of it, but I, I get the, the trail you're going on. Yeah, for sure. All right, let's move on to another game here on Tuesday evening, and it's in the Mountain West. And it's actually East Coast Dad approved. Not too bad with a 9 p.m. tip-off here on, <laughs> on CBS Sports Network. Number 19, San Diego State at Utah State. First place on the line in the Mountain West. These two teams tied at the top of the conference standings. Utah State, a two-and-a-half-point home favorite here, despite being the unranked team, over-under of 144-and-a-half. Eli, you don't have either of these teams ranked in your top 25. We were just talking about spots and maybe having to pay a tax on the team who's got a home spot here. To me, it seems pretty clear that's the case here with Utah State being favored in this one against a generally respected San Diego State squad. Yeah, and elevation is going to play a role. I want to touch on something with Jerry Palm just when it comes to Mountain West teams struggling in the tournament just because BPI, when you look at ratings overall, college basketball ratings across numerous metrics, whether it's Haslam or Torvik or Ken Palm versus BPI, BPI tends to knock teams that play in the Mountain West just because they get that home spot like Utah State with this kind of elevation. And Utah State coming off a blowout loss at Colorado State over the weekend, similarly to Utah State tonight, the Rams benefiting from elevation theoretically in that game. And the Aggies also eyeing revenge after losing to San Diego State going back to a couple weeks ago at Viejas. And both teams solidly in the tournament, according to Jerry Palm and numerous bracketologists. Now, the concern is with Utah State for me, despite the spot, just looking at metrics kind of like you were with Creighton and UConn, Utah State's offense ranks in the 98th percentile of points per game in the paint, according to CBB Analytics, and they're specifically elite at the rim. And Dutcher's defenses traditionally, and the same goes for this season, want to run you off of the three-point line and invite you to attack the paint. Do just that. They rank in the 27th percentile just to add context when it comes to opponents at the rim field goal attempt frequency. And Jane Ledee and San Diego State, Ledee isn't an elite shot blocker like 
you had over the last few seasons with Mensa, specifically going back to that Creighton game, maybe in the Elite Eight, really challenging Ryan Cockbrenner and some of those Blue Jays aggressive guards, even Trey Alexander, who's still on the Jays right now, uh, allowing a 57% field goal clip at the rim, which ranks in the 89th percentile. So that just even adds a little bit more oomph to the notion that the Aztecs can protect the paint despite the fact that they want to allow dribble penetration and run you off the three-point line just because they are so physical in the lane. So I'm pretty high on San Diego State. I actually just, when you mentioned I don't have them power rated in my top 25, I updated that very quickly before our podcast. I have them power rated 24th. Not that that means that I am looking to bet against Utah State here or would advocate betting against Utah State. I make this closer to Utah State minus one, but the spot should be taken into account for sure. Yeah, to me, when San Diego State has the ball, they are a poor three-point field goal offense, and it's not going to get easier here. Utah State has the number one three-point field goal percentage defense in conference. It's inside the arc where I think, on paper at least, San Diego State should be able to have a lot of success. Utah State, you know, you mentioned a little bit there about about them. Uh, just to go even deeper with some of the numbers from Haslametrics, number two seventy three in two point field goal percentage defense overall on the season. San Diego State number two in Mountain West play, and then if we look at just specifically mid range and near proximity. Utah State is outside the top 130 in defending those, and San Diego State is top 40 in field goal percentage on near proximity and mid-range attempts. So I think they can get what they want inside here. And the point is certainly well taken when Utah State has the ball. Um, but, I mean, this this is a really tough San Diego State defense here. And you know they're going to be up for it because, you know, potentially the conference title's on the line in this game. So... Again, I just I'm not going to have a bet in it because on paper this to me screams bet San Diego State, but I elevation, tough road environment. Um, I just I'm going to sit back and observe and 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 try and see how I feel about this. Um, Eli, if you had to bet this game, are you taking the spot with the home team or are you sticking with the with the matchup you see on paper with San Diego State? I think you spelled it out perfectly with the Creighton. UConn game because just because the market drives the number up to a certain degree doesn't mean that you automatically take the other side. Now, it's not like the market has, I mean, the market drove up UConn from a soft opener. I think minus two up to minus three, even minus three and a half at some shops, Utah State opened minus one. So just because this line shot up to two and a half, even three potentially before tip, like we saw with Virginia Vatak, that line got steamed up. I think minus three and a half up to minus 115 when it comes to the VIG before that one tipped on Monday night. So I wouldn't be shocked to see Utah State close as a three-point home favorite, maybe even minus two and a half juiced if you don't want to take it all the way up to a full possession. I can't advocate to bet the other side, though. If you yeah, can, want I, to- can I offer an analogy here, potentially, and see if you agree with it? Yeah, has Lametrics make San Diego State a small favorite in this game, like less than a point. But when we're talking about like near zero here, similar to the NFL, aren't we basically talking about um I don't want to say meaningless numbers, but you know, it's is it is it less meaningful than if we were talking about like 
four points between six and ten type of deal in college basketball. You know what I'm saying? A hundred percent, but it could still land one. It's Been there. so di- <laughs> it's so different than the NFL just because you don't have a one point play. And that's not to say that you didn't recognize that, but just for betters that, uh, I, I mean, when I used to bet college basketball game by game more heavily, that is not me saying bet San Diego State because the number got to a certain point. I still value spots maybe more so than the average better, even though I'm not betting every single day. It's just something that I didn't ignore by any means. So this is one of those games where even though, like you said, it's not up to a full possession, it's still in the one or two range, but it's still valuable, even though it's under the full possession of a three-point line. Wednesday in the SEC, number 24, Florida, goes on the road to take on number 13, Alabama. Uh, obviously, as we record on Tuesday morning, we don't have spreads for this game yet, so we'll use Haslametrics as a projection. Alabama minus 11 and a half over under of 174. Eli, you are more bullish on Florida than the AP poll. You have Florida at number 18, and you're also more bullish on Alabama. You have them at number 8 versus number 13 in the AP poll here. Tell us what first stands out to you about this matchup. I think both teams, and this may surprise the average viewer or listener to outside chats, and maybe some of our viewers and listeners will want to take Florida just because Uh, To me, both teams are at the peak of their market rating. Alabama winning six of their last eight, covering all six. Florida has won seven of its last eight and six of those covering against the spread in regards to Florida batters cashing in their tickets. So even with this number potentially hitting double digits or maybe closing around nine, nine and a half, I still think it's going to be priced correctly. And the issue for me is Florida's guards defensively being able to stop dribble penetration, especially with one of the best guards in the country, mid-major transfer going back to a couple of years ago in Mark Sears. Florida ranks in the 14th percentile of transition points allowed per game in conference play. I'm not talking about a non-conference, even though if you look in a one-game sample, uh, going back to before SEC play, they struggled in this metric against Baylor, which has an elite transition offense. And it's exactly where Alabama thrives. When you look at Walter Clayton and Pullen, two transfers coming into this year, Will Richard, a Belmont transfer going back to a couple years ago, all of them are exploitable off of the dribble. And that allows for open threes when you think about driving kick opportunities. And just to add a little bit of context to that, Florida allowing a 46, 47.6% clip on corner threes allowed over the last five games. And that correlates with the eye test, because if you think about dribble penetration, you're generally speaking going to kick to the corners. And that's where the Gators have struggled when it comes to their defense collapsing. They have a really good interior defense with Tyree Samuel and Hanglotten, but their guards are pretty vulnerable against more athletic ball handlers, which Alabama definitely has. It's not just Sears, Estrada, Ryland Griffin spots up. Again, I think this line is going to be priced correctly. Maybe a little bit inflated towards Alabama just because of that Blitzkrieg uh, win over Texas A&M over the weekend. But I don't have a lot of confidence in Florida being able to... Maybe they keep up offensively and they have a little bit of a size advantage and also an advantage when it comes to generating second chance shots. But I don't think they can keep up defensively here. 
Yeah, it's it's a fair concern for sure. That that was my concern when Alabama has the ball. I when Florida has the ball, I agree with you. If they're going to, it's going to have to be on second chance opportunities because on paper they have a massive edge there. They are number two in SEC play in offensive rebounding percentage. Alabama number eleven in allowing that. If we go by the Haslametrics on potential points off second chances. Uh, Florida ranks seventh in the entire country in that area, and Alabama is 196th in stopping it. So Florida's going to get a lot of second-chance opportunities here, and that's usually a type of team I like to bet on, especially if I'm getting double-digit points here. So we're, But we're talking about a game that's potentially lined in the 170s. I mean, even by this year's standards, that is an astronomical number of points here. So, you know, it's it's not like we're getting 11 and a half in a game where that's line 130, right? It's not the same thing. So <clears throat> I think I'd only want to take the points here with Florida, but it's it's tough, man, because I'm I'm with you on that. Um big picture here, Eli. Alabama's a team that concerns me. Uh, I know the metrics have been kind to them, but when you look at their defensive metrics, this to me screams a team that that is in trouble of not going deep into the tournament if their defense isn't good enough. Like, similar to the way we talked about Kentucky before they've showed a little bit of, of improvement the past couple of games. Yeah, their defense looked a hell of a lot better going back to that Saturday game against Auburn. Luckily for our Tigers futures, Jalen Williams didn't suffer. One that would keep him potentially out of the NCAA tournament. Seems like he's going to be back by max SEC tournament play. But yeah, I'm with you on Alabama's defense. I think still outside of the top 60 when it comes to adjusted defensive efficiency per, yeah, outside of the top 70 even uh, across numerous metrics. So offensively, they can keep up. But when you think about high variance teams in the tournament, generally speaking, you want to back more of a, a long shot or a double digit dog, especially one that plays at a slower tempo. Alabama is not going to be a double digit dog, not going to be a dog in many NCAA tournament games unless they're playing a one or a two seed. And they also don't play at a slow pace by any stretch. So if you go back to that Nate Oates team that was a two seed with John Petty, I had an 80 to one future on that team going back to a few years ago. They actually defended. This team does not. So I'm with you on that concern. I'm going to ask you one more question about the SEC and it's regular season title futures. Right now, Alabama is minus 140 at BetMGM to win the SEC regular season. Now, if we look at the current standings, it makes sense. They're 10 and two. Tennessee is nine and three. Auburn is nine and four. And Alabama is projected to win the rest of their regular season games. However, three of them are on the road. And one is at Kentucky. One is at Florida. And they still have a home game left against Tennessee as well. That's made me wonder if there's a little bit of value on either Tennessee at plus 190 or Auburn at plus 700 just because of the sheer fact that Auburn already has a game in hand. They only have five games left in the regular season, and four of those should be fairly easy wins here. Georgia, Mississippi State, Missouri, and Georgia again to round out the regular season. And then they have potentially a, a make-or-break game for the SEC title on the road against Tennessee. Meanwhile, Tennessee has a lot to a lot of work to do too. Now, to me, they're the top rated team in the conference, in my opinion. But, you know, 
at Missouri should be fine. No big deal. They're probably going to be a double digit favorite at home against Texas A&M. They get that home game against Auburn. They still have the road game against Alabama. And then to finish the regular season off South Carolina and Kentucky, that's not an easy final four games, final five games for Tennessee. So it makes me wonder if maybe Auburn at seven to one here, if you're just basically betting them to beat Tennessee for the SEC title. I wouldn't bet Auburn just because of the injury that I mentioned, Jalen Williams. And I don't really care about it unless you're investing in SEC regular season futures. Then you will have an, a literal investment in the Auburn Tigers when it comes to their regular season performance. If Auburn struggles down the stretch and gets Jalen Williams back, whether it's for that Missouri or Georgia game, I doubt they would play him in one of those games. I think most likely they're going to have him rest until the SEC tournament. So I wouldn't play Auburn just based off of that sheer notion. But Do you think Alabama is a little short here at minus 140, given what they have left? No, because I think the Florida game on the road is a potential upset waiting to happen. Assuming they beat Florida tomorrow night, we're recording this on Tuesday. I like the home spot against Tennessee just because Tennessee's guards defensively with Connect and Ganey, even though they've played well on that end of the floor of late, when you go back to the Arkansas and Vanderbilt games, those are against, need I say, Arkansas and Vanderbilt. So you can't really take too much out of that. Kentucky would be the one team that I would consider taking a shot on just because I was curious just watching that game against Auburn, whether the Tigers, before the Jalen Williams injury, whether Bruce Pearl's team was kind of shocked at the energy level that we saw from Kentucky from the get-go, especially at the defensive end of the floor. I'm still relatively high on Auburn. I think the concern has continued to play out, though, late games. It wasn't like it was a two-possession game down the stretch, but what kind of guard play do you get when you're trailing in a negative game script, just to use the NFL comparison, or down by double digits throughout the second half? And maybe a little bit of shock factor as well with Williams going down. But wouldn't touch Auburn, wouldn't touch Tennessee, consider a long shot at Kentucky, but I'm not playing it. Kentucky 16-1, to remaining schedule at LSU, home against Bama, at Mississippi State, home against Arkansas, home against Vanderbilt. If if they take care of an easy, um, not easy, Mississippi State's a tough road spot. That's that's the spot where they probably need to get a win to maybe set up a, you know, a do or die matchup to end the regular season at Tennessee. So they obviously still have some work to do, and we'll see if the defense holds up. But to your point, Eli, sixteen to one is at least um, a little interesting. Kentucky currently two games back in the loss column in the SEC standings. Final game we're going to talk about on this midweek episode of Outside Shots is a Thursday game. Ohio State at Minnesota. This one on Big Ten Network, 8 p.m. Eastern time tip-off on Thursday. Haslametrics projects Minnesota as a three-and-a-half-point home favorite, over-under of 139-and-a-half. That spread despite Ohio State pulling the big upset over Purdue. Eli, you have both these teams unranked, so tell us why this matchup caught your eye on Thursday. Golden Gophers are 22-3 and against the spread. That is absurd. Covering 88% of the time, you don't hear that in any sport. And I know college basketball has, let's say, a bigger sample size than college football. NFL, that goes without saying. 
NBA has a smaller sample size, so you can maybe throw a grain of salt at that cover rate, but it's still crazy, man, in any sport, anytime a team covers 88% of the time, especially in the latter part of a season when you would expect odds makers to adjust. And I think they did try against Rutgers on Sunday, especially with Rutgers coming off of four straight wins. I mentioned two teams playing at the peak of their market rating with Florida and Alabama. I thought that was kind of the case with Rutgers and Minnesota. Ohio State, this is an interesting game just because the Buckeyes are coming off of a big home upset over Purdue on Sunday. First game without Chris Holtman, Jake Diebler as the interim coach. Still the bugaboo for Purdue, man. Ohio State with 22 points off of turnovers against the Boilermakers. Ball pressure against Braden Smith and this Purdue backcourt. And Matt Painter's backcourts historically have struggled against the press. And when you get up in their grill and try to generate turnovers. And Zed Key, Ohio State's big, actually had five steals. I think he's one of the better defensive centers when it comes to being able to hamper ball penetration. But looking at this game in particular, I think that department could rear its ugly head for the Gophers. They rank 12th in Big Ten play when it comes to turnover percentage. Your primary ball handlers, I'm speaking about the Gophers, Elijah Hawkins and Mike Mitchell, both struggle with misuse and turnovers. Ohio State, if they're able to generate a similar amount or maybe in the double-digit range, high double-digit range, and clearly Diebler had his emphasis on that category in terms of Ohio State trying to generate offense in transition, maybe a little more than Chris Holtman did. I think the Buckeyes continue to play well, and I think the market may be overvaluing Minnesota in this spot. Fair enough. I'm going to be honest with you, everybody. I got nothing on this one. You can check out the Discord top right-hand corner of the lines.com homepage after I dig a little bit deeper into this with the Thursday game. Want to see where the spread comes out. If I do bet it, I will share it in the Staff Basketball Bets channel, but certainly great points by you, Eli, on that one. Now it's time to be joined by Jerry Palm at JP Palm CBS on X, bracketologist for CBS Sports, also covers college football, and he's been doing it for very long time, veteran college sports writer and knows the March Madness bracket and what goes into it better than anybody else, considering he was at the bracket reveal show over the weekend on CBS. So first off, Jerry, what was the best food you had in New York this past weekend? <laughs> oh, actually, it was a cheeseburger in a pub because I, <laughs> most, mostly like you're in the studio, they feed you, right? So I don't have a lot of uh, free time for going to find, um, you know, like a great dinner or something. And maybe, maybe we'll get to that. Well, we had a great dinner. Actually, I take that back. We went to this Italian place, uh, for Friday night dinner, uh, and had a fettuccine Alfredo that was just fabulous. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, on my own, I found a cheeseburger in a pub and I'm more of a cheeseburger in a pub kind of guy anyway. All right. I respect it. Hopefully for, and I used to live in the Chicago suburbs. So for anybody that proclaims that ketchup shouldn't be on a hot dog, maybe we'll get to that at the back end of this and get your <laughs> opinion. Whole other podcast Not my hot dog, takes. but you know. <laughs> <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. But going back to the bracket reveal show, uh, looking at some of the one seeds and pretty much all of them are consensus at this point with Houston and their dominant win over Iowa State, at least in the latter part of the second half on Monday night. UConn, Purdue, and Arizona rounding out that crop of one seeds. If you had to pick one team that could fall off 
that one line come the actual selection Sunday, even though the bracket reveal show was on a Saturday in a, in a few weeks, which team would it be? Well, I'd have to say Arizona because I think Arizona could get past even if they don't lose. Um, they're out of quad one opportunities, I think, in the regular season. They are the quad one opportunity for everyone else in that league. So, you know, it's hard for them to resume build. And you've got Carolina chasing. You've got Tennessee chasing. You've got, um, you know, Kansas and, and Marquette and, you know, maybe even somebody like Alabama chasing. And they all have a slew of quad one wins left, four or five, you know, in the regular season still, let alone uh, potential in the conference tournaments, which again, Arizona is not going to have much. So these teams could continue to add real quality to their resume where Arizona is trying to avoid screwing it up. And it's really hard to hold a spot when that's the position you're in. Um, Arizona is a great team, absolutely a potential national champion, whether they're a one or a two, doesn't really matter. Um, but they may not be a one seed uh, if one of these teams behind them, well, behind the behind Arizona, gets hot enough to chase them down because of the quality of opponents they have left on their schedule. Jerry, Purdue obviously on the top line out of the Big Ten. In that same conference, Illinois is an interesting resume, projected as a four seed, but potentially the best win on the resume right now against FAU. Still have FAU as a seven, despite some some recent struggles here. What do you make of Illinois' resume overall here? Yeah, Illinois is a tough team to figure. Um, they've had chances at better wins, have come up short. Um, Michigan State is actually the probably their top quad one win at right now, as Florida Atlantic has faded just a little bit. Uh, they've got chances, though. They still have to go to Wisconsin to get Purdue at home. Conference tournament will give them some more chances. So they, But I think if Florida Atlantic is their best win on Selection Sunday, they're probably more in the sixth range, give or take. But it always, you know, it depends on what other teams do. It's hard to analyze one team in a vacuum. Um, but Illinois is really talented. I mean, they were without Shannon for a while. He's back now. And then they spent a little bit of time trying to figure out how to play with him again. Marcus Damask has been tremendous for them. Uh, real find out of Southern Illinois. You know, it's funny. Purdue got Lance Jones out of Southern Illinois, and he's been a real difference maker for Purdue. A, a big reason why they are where they are this year, uh, even compared to last year. And then you got Marcus Damask in Illinois making a big difference for the Illini. How did Southern Illinois not win the Missouri Valley last year with those two guys? That's, it's, it's just amazing to me. But I you I literally talked about that in recent shows, Jerry. Yeah, I just anyway, I digress. But um, <laughs> yeah, I like Illinois. That they've got a lot of talent. They're very athletic. Um, it they're going to be tough for somebody to knock out, uh, but they can also shoot themselves out of games. And and sometimes Shannon plays too fast, and sometimes Hawkins loses his mind a little bit. It's if, if Hawkins could just rein in his emotions, his talent is, is really, really high. But he lets his emotions get the better of him, and I think that costs him and them uh, from time to time. Yeah, just staying on the Illinois topic for a second, and with Coleman Hawkins in particular, I'm not trying to pull like the old man in with his fist in the air yelling at the cloud kind of thing, but I, I think he went on a podcast or he said it to the media last week that he doesn't get why he gets a bad rap yet. He wore the Maryland shirt on the plane going back from the from their win over the weekend back to Champaign, kind of like, you know, rub it in their face a bit just because Illinois hadn't won a game 
at Maryland in a while. You go back to the Michigan State game in their rematch a couple weeks ago, talking crap to the fan on the sideline, getting teed up. You're kind of putting yourself in a bad position, right? Yeah. I actually wasn't even really talking about the Maryland thing. Uh, the But the talk, the talking to the fans, I mean, that's during a game, keeping your head during a game. He got teed up for it. Yeah, but and I was at the Illinois-Purdue game at Purdue that they have the, the return trip coming up here in March. And he's out of his mind. Every time, every call that goes against him, he's just all these demonstrations and pleadings and, and stuff to the, I can't believe the officials in that game didn't tee him up. You know, just get tired of the antics after all of that. And that's, it's, it's the, the lack of control of his emotions. And actually you're talking about that as well. I'm just talking about it on the court, but the lack of control of his emotions at some point is going to hurt him and Illinois at, at a really inopportune time. It just hasn't happened yet. I want to stay on the Big Ten for one more thing. Steven, you could swing it over to the Mountain West after this. Purdue, if you look at their odds to make the Final Four, and obviously one of the favorites, like you said, or you alluded to at least, unlikely to fall off of that one-seed line, priced in the minus-195 range to miss the Final Four, Turnovers were an issue yet again against Ohio State. I know it was kind of a sleepy spot for the Boilermakers on Sunday afternoon on CBS and Ohio State maybe not having a lot to play for when it comes to making the tournament because that's pretty much gone by the wayside. But Chris Holman getting fired, a bit of a uh, motivational spot with Diebler taking over at head coach. How concerned are you with Purdue's guard play, particularly if you face a team that can pressure the ball like Ohio State did on Sunday? Yeah, it's, I mean, that's the thing. If you want to beat Purdue, you better turn them over. If you don't turn them over, they'll bury you. It's, it's really the only thing that you can do. Um, you can't really defend Zach, but Zach had six turnovers. So it's not just the guards. Um, Purdue's three losses this year, they're minus nine average turnover margin. So when they take care of the ball, uh, and even just take care of the ball reasonably well, um, they're really hard to beat. So, at, you know, the teams, there are teams out there that can pressure them, I'm sure. Um, you know, Purdue's not invincible, but, um, you know, they're playing really well this year. They're, they're better than last year. Uh, Jones, uh, not Lance Jones has obviously been a tremendous addition, a big part of what they've been able to do this year because of his, his speed, his defense, and the fact that he can hit a three and he's the backup point guard for Braden Smith. Um, and they ask a lot of Braden Smith. He plays a ton of minutes. Uh, but Smith is bigger, stronger. Uh, Fletcher Lawyer is stronger. The, these guys at the year older, you know, they hit the freshman wall last year. They're not going to hit a wall this year. That doesn't mean they're going to have a bad game at some point and play their way out. But um, when Purdue's at their best, their best is really, really hard to beat. So, Jerry, we're recording this on Tuesday morning. We have a big matchup in the Mountain West, first place on the line between San Diego State and Utah State. Big picture in that conference. BPI has the Mountain West slightly lower than most metrics. It accounts for elevation. And, Eli, do I have the stat right here? a lot of weird stuff. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Those ESPN metrics account for a lot of unusual things. So obviously elevation is something we take into account when we're doing home court and, and a lot of those those venues in the Mountain West. Eli, do I have the stat right here? Since 2005, the Mountain West teams in the NCAA tournament are only 27, 56, and 3 against the spread. Is that accurate? Yeah, and that includes San Diego State's run last year. That's, that's yeah, unbelievable. How many games yeah. did they cover? Well, probably a lot because they were underdogs. 
Yeah, yeah. So, so Jerry, I mean, what are we doing with this conference this year? You have San Diego State as a four, Utah as a five, Utah State as a five, Boise State, New Mexico, and Richard Pitino in the mix. How do how do you view this? I, I, first of all, tremendous year for the league. Six NCAA tournament quality teams. There's still a chance one or two could fall off, but you know, a great year at the top half of this league. There's a significant gap to the bottom half, but. All, five, all six of those teams are capable of winning a game or two. And, you know, if you get a good draw, maybe even more. Um, San Diego State, I particularly like because, uh, first of all, they did it last year, so they know how to do it, even though you're not going to have all the same guys back. Um, but and I just think whenever I watch San Diego State play, and this was especially true last year, it's like all of these guys are built like linebackers. I mean, right? It's not like they're yeah. not athletic, but San Diego State is a really strong physical team. And, uh, you know, if they, if they can, uh, I, I think it worked well for them last year. The, the strength of that team worked well for them last year and it could work well for them again this year. Yeah. I was just thinking, I don't want to see uh Lede in, in the back corner of an alley somewhere that that guy would <laughs> yeah. bench press me and you and Eli combined guys. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I weigh nothing. So yeah, I don't know about you guys. But, yeah, I, I do not weigh nothing. And I think he'd still bench me quite easily. Uh, so <laughs> Just one more note on a West Coast team here. St. Mary's fascinates me, Jerry. They We had so much, so many preseason expectations with them. They were pretty underwhelming in the non-conference. And now they look like juggernauts in the West Coast Conference. So to me, this looks like potentially an underseeded team just based on how they're playing going in. I mean, uh, that's always the debate with the West Coast Conference. Is it is it about the opponents that they're playing? Are they really that good? It feels like we've had that conversation with Gonzaga over and over again every year once the brackets come out. But just seeding-wise, what is their ceiling given how poorly they played in the non-conference? Well, their seed ceiling is probably something like a four. If they win really? all the way okay. out, they beat Gonzaga two more times. You know, the, and it, but the, the thing about the seed is it's not just about you, you know, all of these other teams are playing. So, I mean, you can, you can win a game and lose a seed because somebody else did something better even yeah. and, you know, passes you, even though you won. So, um, but if, if they went all the way out, they beat Gonzaga two more times. They're probably, first of all, knocking Gonzaga out of the tournament. Um, and then, uh, but then they're definitely a top half. Uh, I, the ceiling is probably a four, but that would be, they would need a lot of help, I think, to get to four. Looking at a power five, power six conference and the ACC, North Carolina, you have lined as a two seed bouncing back against Vatek over the weekend. Duke continuing to roll. Jared McCain was phenomenal without Tyrese Proctor at Florida State. You have the Blue Devils as a three seed. Clemson, you have as a six. There are some still believers in the Tigers when it comes to them being a five seed. And also when it comes to their long-term outlook, Steven and I both bet the Tigers as a long shot final four team. I'm curious what you make of the Clemson Tigers in particular, but looking at this conference as a whole, Virginia down to a 10 seed after getting blown out and then some against Vatek on Monday night, Pitt, Wake Forest, NC State, maybe with the Wolfpack on the bubble specifically, but what do you make of the ACC and this conference in general when it comes to their strength as a collective unit and then with Clemson rolling in non-conference, struggling a bit in league play. Um, I don't have NC State on the bubble at all. 
I barely, I barely, I looked at them once and it's, and they've done nothing to make me look at them twice. Um, the, you know, the top three are pretty solid. You know, North Carolina was fifth overall for the committee. Um, I would have had them seventh, but that's, you know, picking nits. Um, that's a, that's a really good team could win the national title. I don't have that level of faith in Duke, despite the fact they have the talent to do it. Uh, they just don't seem to have, there's just something intangible missing with that team. They're not quite the sum of their parts. Um, and I, I don't, I not around them enough to know what that might be, but they're still a very good team. Uh, Clemson's a top 25 level team. I actually got to see him a little bit in Canada uh, we went up to watch Purdue and Alabama, and Clemson TCU was the second game of that, so we got to watch some of them. But PJ Hall's really good, um, you know. Then he he's going to have to carry them, and they'll go as far as he can carry them in this tournament. Uh, after that, yeah, I don't trust anybody. Virginia's got hot and put themselves in into the bracket for now. Uh, last night was pretty ugly. They've got a difficult schedule ahead. They get Carolina at home, and I think Duke on the road the week after. Wake, maybe if they can ever find a way to get that big win, it just seems to elude them. Pitt has been hit and miss and has a really bad non-conference schedule that's weighing them down because their overall schedule is not very good due to that. Um, so, you know, those are teams that are just going to have to get hot and, you know, find their way in, and we're running out of time to get hot. Jerry, final question. We're going to go to the Big East. I want to ask you about Seton Hall. And full disclosure, I am from Philadelphia, but short of the shore in Jersey, I really don't care about the state of New Jersey. So understand there's no bias in this question. I don't understand, and you're not alone here. I don't understand why you and a lot of other bracketologists currently don't have Seton Hall in the field. Because if we look at their resume, granted, the non-conference was rough, but they are still a 10-win Big East team very unlikely that they're going to have fewer than 11 wins with the Paul still on the schedule. Probably a few more than that wins against Connecticut and Marquette already. This is where the sports books currently disagree with you and your fellow bracketologists. They make Seton Hall minus 136 to make the field, but at least at present, tell us why Seton Hall doesn't quite have enough yet. It's because of their inconsistency. Uh, you keep mentioning their conference statistics. None of that is relevant. I, the conference record's not even on the team sheet. They don't care. Um, you know, they played a poor non-conference schedule. Not as bad as the one I just described, but a poor non-conference schedule. Um, they're, they're five and five against quad one. That's, and you kind of market at home. Not bad wins. It'd be better if they had a better win away from home. Their best away from home win is Butler. Um, couple of quad two losses, couple of quad three losses. It's just that level of inconsistency. Up until they beat St. John's Sunday, they were below 500 against the top three quadrants. Teams like that don't get in the tournament very often. So that's why I'm hesitant to pull the trigger on St. John's yet. Uh, they get Butler at home, and that's it's kind of a must-win game for both teams. Um, and then Creighton and UConn on the road. So, so we're going to find out what Seton Hall is made of here. And if, if they can even play themselves to a point over these next three games where the last two games still matter. Uh, I, I think if Seton Hall is going to make the tournament and I'm certainly not going to say they can't because they're pretty squarely on my bubble. So they can. Um, I think that we're not going to know that for sure until they get to the conference tournament. Yeah. Just going back to the Pirates for a second, two big games on the road next week, like you said, the Butler game coming up this weekend, and then 
at Creighton, at UConn. So you in one of those games, may, maybe you play yourself into the field to Jerry's point. Yeah, fair enough. Why'd it's you don't certain. give it away? Yeah, yeah. Well, the opportunity is there, right? They they still have some some tough opponents on the schedule, Big East tournament to go. So hopefully the as you mentioned, Jerry, the the well-rounded picture will look better for them come selection Sunday. It's certainly uh still available for the Pirates, that is for sure. Again, Jerry Palms, bracketologist over at CBS Sports, cbsports.com. Thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it. For the rest of you, be sure to hit the like button, hit, hit the subscribe button, let us know in the comments what team you are eyeing potentially in futures or this weekend or on the schedule this week. And we'll see you next time on Outside Shots.